0: Hi there, welcome to Reels and Records, episode three. My name is Macy, it's nice to meet you. Uh, Reels and Records is a podcast where I throw up all my film score appreciation as we go over the details that went into the creation of some of the most under- and overrated soundtracks. Picking them apart until we find out just what it is that makes them so good. I think... And I think it's a pretty universal thought that one of the most devastating questions to be asked is what my favorite movie is, which pretty much speaks for itself. Do I think Pulp Fiction is better than Shrek 2? Yes. Do I think Joker is better than Lego Batman? Yeah. Do I think Rosemary's Baby is better than Scott Pilgrim? Probably. Probably. But I think it's obvious that I would not choose to watch the first option over the second. Now, do I think Citizen Kane is better than Ratatouille? Probably not, probably not. It's an impossible question. The last time I confidently knew what my favorite movie was, the answer was probably something like Spider- man Homecoming, which really says something about middle school me. (laughs) Without further ado, today I give you my answer. (laughs) The love of my life a movie so flawless it has indisputably earned the top spot. Directed by Greta Gerwig, my actual favorite director and biggest inspiration in regards to film. The 2019 adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's timeless novel with an unbeatable stacked cast. Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh, Timothy Chalamet, Emma Watson, Eliza Scanlon, Meryl Streep, Laura Dern. The makeup of my entire personality, my ambition, my heart, my existence. Little Women. I'm so excited for this <laughs> this is the best movie ever okay i'm trying my best to focus on the soundtrack during this episode because it truly is heaven to me all by itself but there's a really strong relationship between this version of little women and its soundtrack so i advise you to watch it not only because you'll appreciate the music more if you do but also because it'll likely change your whole outlook on life and love, and I don't think I was really a real human person before I watched this movie for the first time, so I'm just warning you. I don't know why this film isn't in the conversation of film buff films more often, except I do know exactly why, and it's because stereotypical film buff movies are all for the male gaze. The industry is predominantly male, but this movie is beyond words flawless and Despite it being catered mostly to women, I feel like it has a lot to say about positive masculinity because nearly all of the main male characters are some of the best examples I've seen of it. The soundtrack composer, in my eyes, is the king of film scores. No one is doing it like him. Alexandre Desplat, Desplat, he's French. <laughs> Just to name a few of his projects, he did uh, The Shape of Water, The Imitation Game, he did a million Wes Anderson films, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom, French Dispatch, Isle of Dogs. He did Girl with a Pearl Earring. He did uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2, The Tree of Life. He also did Barbie for Greta, which comes out this year, and Asteroid City for Wes Anderson, which also comes out this year. Um, Greta and Alexandra did an interview with the Rolling Stones, not the Rolling Stones, the band that the magazine with Rolling Stone about the soundtrack for Little Women, um, which I think is so perfect for this episode, and I'm very sorry, but I'm about to quote 90% of it. Greta constantly emphasizes the importance of the score to this movie. She says that she wanted the movie to be a ballet musical. The score drives the story. An article by Caroline Goddard says, Alexander Desplat's Little Women's score is an indispensable part of the cinematic experience. Perfect way to phrase it. The song, uh, the first song discussed in the Rolling Stone article is called The Beach. block captures the innocence and youth of the characters in the first beach beach scene where everyone is having fun and running around. It's a peak of livelihood and nostalgia. Something I'm going to constantly refer back to is Greta's use of parallelism in this adaptation, she strays away from a chronologically linear method of storytelling and instead matches the emotional progression of the story. This gives way to comparing and contrasting two completely different periods of a lifetime in the way that they emotionally affect the characters. There are two prominent beach scenes and they're juxtaposed right next to each other in the film. This joyful, childish scene previously mentioned and the scene where Joe takes Beth to the sea when they're both older. Uh, Beth has become sick again and Joe reads to her and hopes to help strengthen her. In the second beach scene, we hear the same bits of melody used in the previous beach scene, emphasizing for us that this is a parallel and that exaggerates the emotion so efficiently. Something Greta says in this interview that really struck me is this, quote, Alexandra's music is beautiful like that, but not saccharine. It's exacting. It already senses a certain loss, which is what I was looking for. She basically is inciting that laced inside of this bubbly, sparkling piece of music is an undertone of loss and grief. Not only is the music mourning the loss of Beth, but it's mourning the loss of childhood which is a feeling that Joe spends the entire film expressing. And I'll definitely talk more about that later. Greta recalls seeing the beach scene with music for the first time and wanting to cry saying, I didn't know that that's exactly the music I wanted, but that's exactly the music I wanted. There is no better feeling than that as a director. I'm so certain of it. The next piece talked about in the interview is called Father Comes Home. To quote the Queen Greta again, there's this theme that plays during the scene and the series of notes always makes me cry. And I've seen this movie more than any human on earth. I guess this is my question for Alexandra. How did you know a series of notes would make people cry? Listening to the song, it's obvious what that exact series of notes is. And I can't lie, definitely has that effect. In answering your question, Alexandra talks about how he was trained by French cinema, where being very particular and deliberate with your music was crucial because there was hardly any room for music. Something he says that I am so obsessed with is, I was trained to be precise, to be concise, and to follow the characters more than the image, which is quite different from American cinema. A lot of composers write to what they see on the screen and they follow the action. He then goes on to say, I'm always trying to avoid the traps of redundant rhythm. If it's green, I'm not going to use green. I'm going to use orange or yellow. If it's blue, I'm going to use gray, but I'm not going to use the same color as what's on screen. I always try to figure out what is the trap that I can avoid and how can I jump over this trap and find another path to the emotions. I try to be delicate. I don't know how these notes came, but they're not long notes, they're fragile, and that's what brings out this emotion, because they're restrained by their fragility. Then you see the fragility of the characters. You can see why I feel the need to quote so much of this. It's just hit after hit after hit. I read somewhere that Displa does not actually have synesthesia, which is the condition where you can listen to music and see colors or shape. But his brain works in that sense where he just pays all of his attention to what his music is communicating. He said in another interview, I listen with my eyes and I look with my ears. His role as a composer is to simulate and produce that synesthetic feeling. He takes that intended meaning of the film and the character's colorful array of feelings and he creates emotion out of a collection of notes. I think that is insane. Desplat emphasizes his idea that the music has to respect the emotions. And you can seriously see how well he's been able to do that. The music cues us in multiple aspects of the film. Characters, emotions, personalities, flaws, reactions, When Beth dies, as an example, the music harnesses Marmee's flaming grief and Joe's existential numbness and Beth's quietly beautiful personality, all in one song, all in one melody. It's beyond impressive. Now, let's talk about the theme, the theme theme, the one called Little Women. It's too good. It's too perfect for this. What better way is there to describe the March girls than than like this? This is merely better all by itself than all the words you could use. It's very fast-paced, high energy, full of excitement and adventure, but it's still gentle and restrained and just enough to perfect the intensity in the story. It's a classical and timeless piece, and yet it still feels very modern in so many ways. The main melodic theme in Little Women is introduced here. no better melody could have been chosen for this. The melody, the small set of notes that seem to see-saw back and forth are spectacularly versatile. I'm not sure I could think of another leitmotif that can move from emotion to emotion more effortlessly. For example, here's a happy version of that leitmotif. And then right after, there's a more melancholic, reminiscent version of that. And it's not just in one song either. The same melody is scattered throughout the soundtrack, like in the last moments of the book, and in Christmas morning. Snow in the garden. And even inside of the song, Joe writes, where it's been altered into a minor key and a different rhythm. Which brings me to my next favorite thing to talk about how the music attaches itself to different characters' personalities. Like this recurring melody, making changes based on the current plot or emotional content, the score is constantly adjusting and reforming to whatever character the audience is currently focused on. The most obvious of character melodies are the tracks titled directly after specific characters. And I love, love, love that these tracks are Amy and Lori and also Friedrich. Um, we also have tracks like Joe writes, Laurie kisses Amy, Laurie and Jonah Hill, Meg's dress, and Amy, Fred, Meg, and John, that feature characters' names. But I care most to focus on the ones solely based on a single character, for the the time being. Uh, something I love about the title track, um, not title track. <laughs> something I love about the track titled Amy is that. It's played for the very first time when we see Lori, not Amy. This scene is a glorious scene. Amy sees Lori in Europe for the first time in a long time. And Greta made the brilliant, wonderful, genius choice of shooting Lori's introduction in slow motion. Um, A round of applause for Greta for having that idea, except I don't have a soundboard. So pretend that every single human with radiant taste in men is applauding right now i'm sure they are (laughs) amy's song has a brilliant way of characterizing her determined spirit at both the immature and mature stages of her life which are both stages that we as an audience get to witness it begins with a very lively flowing moving section and slowly evolves into a more careful and calculated piece the piece is so authentically Amy as a whole, especially Florence Pugh's depiction of her. And of course, when we hear Amy's musical personality right when Laurie is introduced, he's subconsciously set up in the audience's mind as hers. Greta has talked about this before because she basically wanted to really establish Laurie and Amy's relationship rather than having it be an afterthought. Thank goodness. We're used to typical romance films where the first two people that meet are the ones who end up together. The third piece of the triangle is typically introduced after. Though Greta wasn't intending the romantic plotline to have a triangle effect, she wanted to use the subconscious assumptions of the audience to her advantage. It's genius. Same thing goes for the childhood timeline. Laurie and Amy officially meet when she injures her hand and they invite her inside. She goes, I'm Amy, and he's like, hello, Amy, I'm Lori. And she's like, I know, you brought my sister home from the dance. I would have never sprained my ankle. I have lovely feet, the best in the family. <laughs> I, I unintentionally have most of this movie stored in the back of my mind. Although in the chronological order of things Lori and Joe meet first, the structure and techniques of filmmaking do a heavy bit of foreshadowing for the audience. Lori's song is a bit different. It has very professional, very standard high-class feel which Lori was born into. It features a string orchestra which was common for classical pieces at the time. Something that was not too common at the time and really shines in this piece is the harp that really becomes a statement. Harp is an instrument that is used so often throughout the soundtrack. And in this case, I kind of feel like it represents the marches role in Lori's life. The harp really contrasts the rest of the strings as it's flowing and moving in very dreamlike ways. The background strings are stiff, staccato, poised and careful. So the lively arpeggios in the harp feel a lot like the life and love the marches gave Lori by just simply being a part of his life. Next up, we have Friedrich's song. As Friedrich is only a part of the timeline where the March girls have grown up, the tone of this song is relatively dark. And I think it serves a purpose, especially because Friedrich's character begins as a critic of Joe, one she doesn't particularly like, after receiving some pretty harsh feedback. I could speak forever on why Friedrich and Joe are perfect for each other, especially on why Laurie and Joe aren't perfect for each other, but I'll stick to saying that this piece does a really great job at expressing the personality of Friedrich. He's a realist. He's honest, and he's polite and kind-hearted, and he's careful and quiet, and he's extremely respectful of Joe. He respects her enough to tell her what she doesn't want to hear, and I think that says a lot about how much he cares about her. I've not nearly talked about Meg enough. I don't think I have at all yet, actually, but it feels like I need to dedicate a good bit of time to her, because I think her character is more complicated and intricate than most people assume it to be. Meg is the most proper, the most conventional, the most responsible, the most romantic, and when I say romantic, I don't only mean in a sense of loving a person, I'd also say she romanticizes the most, she desires the most, she really yearns for the luxuries she could never have growing up. The song, Meg's Dress, once again, pertains to two parts of Meg's timeline. It could be referring to the dress um, Meg is given to wear at the dead ball, or the fabric she later impulsively buys to make a dress, knowing well that she and John do not have the funds for it. The beginning of the song mirrors that plot line and the dreary reality of not living the financially comfortable life Meg always desired. It incorporates anxiety and stress into the feeling of sacrifice, the sacrifice Meg made for the sake of love. And the song feels like knowing better than to want more and feeling guilty for still wanting it. Then... Around one twenty two, the pace quickens and we're transported back to the past where Meg or Daisy got to experience at the ball what it could have been like for her. The life of frills and fuss that she'd been romanticizing. She got to live for a minute. There's excitement again and a fresh sense of youth and anxiety turning excitement and anticipation rather than worry and concern. I have a lot of room in my heart for Meg. I, as a broke college student, can definitely feel her pain and I respect her so much. She's such a powerful and kind figure. We focus a lot on Meg's flaws and decisions because they kind of stick out in comparison to Joe's ideals and views, but I think Meg's strengths are knowing right from wrong and also knowing how best to love people who need it. Meg is perfect proof that a path of motherhood and creating family is just as strong and respectable as being an artist, a writer, or anything of the sort, and vice versa. I mean, that's the whole point of the movie. I wrote an essay for my gender studies class about this, actually. A uh, little Women's feminist lens on the time period's social structure of gender and such. But I'm getting away from the musical aspect of this, so let's move on. Let's talk about the song Joe writes. This song feels just like sitting down in front of a blank page and waiting for the rush of inspiration to strike. There's mystery laced into it, a sense of waiting on the edge of a cliff for the words you're looking for. Then there's this really soft tremolo underneath the melody which imitates the creativity creeping up on Joe. played violin in middle and high school and (laughs) this technique does wonders for building tension. It's basically just using really fast bow movements and only a little bit of space on the bow and the majority of film scores utilize it somewhere. And then that inspiration strikes and now there's this musical creativity flowing out of the piece in billowing notes. Now it sounds like the adrenaline rush that comes with transferring an artistic vision from your head into real life. In this particular scene, Jo is writing her novel for days on end. One of my favorite aspects of the scene is a small detail where her right hand is tired of writing and she effortlessly switches to writing with her left hand, which I believe is something Greta pulled from Louisa May Alcott herself, who Joe's character is actually very heavily inspired by. The next song I wanna talk about is track 16, Lori and Joe on a Hill. This song feels like peak devastation. It so perfectly mixes together all of the feelings Joe and Laurie are experiencing. While Laurie is feeling some serious heartbreak and a really sad version of confusion, Joe is feeling not only bad that she has to turn him down, she's feeling her childhood fleeting in front of her eyes. Growing up is something that Joe avoids like the plague. At this point in the film, Meg is married, Amy's going off to Europe to pursue her art, And Laurie is about to finish school, and is therefore starting to realize that he has to grow up too. The last connection to childhood that Joe has is her friendship with Laurie, and I think she feels so adamant on turning him down because she refuses to accept that childhood is over. The film so directly relates to childhood nostalgia and explores the tragedy of growing out of girlhood, which makes it that much more amazing when the music so impeccably communicates the emotion in its styles and composition. The score is filled with musical nods to childhood nostalgia, which makes pieces like Laurie and Joan Hill really stand out in contrast to typically vibrant and bubbling pieces. The use of high contrast is one of the most significant techniques used in this film. The most obvious one to me is the contrast in color grading for scenes from the childhood timeline against scenes from the adult t- adulthood timeline. The childhood scenes display warm saturated tones and nice naturally lit scenes to show pure joy and an adolescent perspective on the world while the adulthood scenes are cold much darker dulled and gray even in the characters costuming it reflects the transition the costuming also uses contrast in between the characters to display color dynamics and intel about their personalities. each character has a distinct color palette in their physical costume design so Joe has red and navy blue, Meg has lavender and green, Beth has pink and brown, and Amy has light blue, which says so much about their characters right off the bat. Red, Joe is power, danger, courage, passion, but it can also it can also show anger and aggression. While navy blue is Joe's freedom, intuition, loyalty, importance, confidence. Lavender Meg is purity, kindness, elegance, luxury, and devotion, and Meg's pop of a chartreuse green shows her desire for luxury, her liveliness, and her good nature. Pink is a color of innocence, nostalgia, romance, while brown is security, honesty, comfort, wisdom, and timidness which are all perfect descriptions of Beth. And then light blue is a color associated with childhood, growth, balance, and clarity, while also representing boastfulness and being self-centered and stubborn, which is very Amy. I'll always be an Amy defender, but, but you know. I also love that both Joe and Amy share a shade of blue because Ultimately, they have a lot in common with one another. Their passion and their stubbornness is what fuels their conflicts. Even the contrast in personality traits is purely to enhance and bring out all of the others. Louisa May Alcott knew very well how to create vibrant and collaborative character dynamics. And of course, the most relevant to this episode, the musical contrast between exuberant liveliness versus extremely sad slower pieces. If we take a song like It's Romance, And then play Father Comes Home, directly after that. And then play something like Dance on the Porch right after that. Emotions we feel, one after the other, are amplified because of how different they are. That's why it's so important, and especially so important in a film that relies so heavily on parallelism, which is basically just another way of phrasing the act of comparing and contrasting. Speaking of the dance on the porch scene, arguably one of the most lightheartedly joyful parts of this movie, what a fantastic piece of music for such a scene. Just to clarify, the song from the soundtrack called Dance on the Porch isn't technically the song that Laurie and Joe dance on the porch to in the movie. That song is called String Quartet Number no. 12 in F Major, Opus 96, American Movement 3, Molto Vivace. I'm gonna guess it's Vivace, cause that, it sounds, I don't know. Which, it's such a stunning song and instantly sends chills down my spine. It's a little bit funny to use for the scene, seeing as the song wasn't composed until about 10 years after the time period of Little Women. And the song is presumably diegetic, but I think if I were in Greta's position, I would also sacrifice realism for a song like this. But the song is not on the soundtrack, and instead we have Dance on the Porch, which communicates the same grandeur and playfulness as the scene. Another song I feel like translates its correlating scene flawlessly is track six, called Ice Skating. As we know, the ice skating scene is unfortunately a very literal icebreaker of Joe and Amy's fight after Amy sets Joe's novel uh, to flames. Here's why I feel like this song is genius. I feel like this song is not the most terrifying or dangerous song for the situation it's describing. It doesn't cue us into the events that are going to happen by playing ominous drones through a, a visually happy scene, the way most films do. And yet it's still a stunning match in the scene. The music begins by describing the winter scenery, its serenity and calm nature, and it's almost like a whimsical distraction. And it's exactly the the distraction that Joe is curating in order to ignore Amy. Then, of course, the song morphs into a very anxious piece, but still by using these same wonders and childlike instruments. That's why Alexandra did such a phenomenal job on score. He didn't play to the actions or incomings of the scene. He mirrored the emotions inside of it. This is what made Amy falling through the ice a much more unexpected and alarming scene. We got to follow Jo's emotional journey of instantly dropping her hatred when her sisterly instinct burst through in a panic. And we didn't just watch it happen, we heard it. Really quickly, I want to mention the song Lori Kisses Amy. It's perfectly done because how hard would it be to create a piece of music that illustrates the feeling of grieving your sister and also finally kissing the person you've loved nearly your whole life? at the same time it's such a sweet and simple mirroring of amy and laurie's emotional journeys here i also really love the gentle hints of piano inside of the piece it's not super prevalent but it shows through occasionally and it's like a little piece of beth inside of amy's heart (laughs) the final song before the credits roll is called the book as it follows the publication of Jo's first novel that is truly her own. The piece starts off with such high adrenaline telling us to feel exactly what Joe feels. It brings satisfaction into the emotional repertoire and then hope and future. Desplat mentions that he believes Jo's thoughts while watching her novel being made or of what she would write next. The end of the piece and the end of the movie mirror the beginning moments of the film with shots that look very similar. Uh, One of her standing in the backlit doorway of the publishing office, and then the final shot of her looking through the window at her books being made. The score during this part immediately makes me burst into tears, and not announcing me as joking when I say this. Greta says, the last moment where Jo finally gets her book. I remember I said to Alexandra, I want the movie, before the score for the end titles comes up, to feel like a question mark. Like it's throwing a question back at the audience. When he gave me those last couple of notes, it was the question. I feel like I can say this because I didn't make the music, but it's one of my favorite musical endings ever. I can definitely say this also, because I also did not make the music, nor the movie, It is one of my favorite musical endings ever. There are just not words good enough to do this level of overwhelming emotional influence, the exalting justice it deserves. I've certainly talked for way too long about some of the way too detailed details. And I know for a fact I could talk about a million more, but I also definitely got sidetracked from the score a couple times. I feel like the only way to truly do this film and the score, the justice, it deserves is just to really really dive into it. So I hope you took something away from my overwhelming love for this film now that it is laid out completely on the table. <laughs> the amount of sheer respect to have for the creators behind this piece of art, all of them, Greta, Alexandre Desplat, Louisa May Alcott, all of the cast, all of them, this is the kind of film that completely rejuvenates my motivation to keep pursuing what I am. It feels so relevant hundreds of years later and I'm sure it'll never lose that sense of relevancy. I personally can't describe a story more relatable to me as someone with a sister, as an artist, as a woman, and especially as an artist that is a woman, as a musician and a writer and a daughter, and just as a human with aspirations beyond what is thought practical. I love little women. I hardly need to say it again, but I feel like there's still so much more in me that needs to express how much it shakes my whole soul, but that is all I'm allowing my myself to say. So until next time, I'm Macy. This has been Reels and Records. I hope you have a great day and your music hits extra hard. Oh, uh, and also go watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Just a hint. (laughs) Bye. I'm so sure I have all this movie memorized, and I do not remember it even trying to memorize well, I it. believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to I gave a billiards. I gave up everything in like. I'm happy I did. It's fine. And I waited, and I never complained. Because I... Because <laughs> I figured you loved love me, Joe. <laughs>